Aha, welcome back, friends of the podcast, general Trekkies and geeks and uh, people who are going to hopefully want to check out this uh, interview. It's the third in our series of interviews with people from the Trek world, and it's by far our longest and most detailed. Uh, we've already recorded it at time of recording this intro, so we can say uh, you're in for a treat, first of all. Um, we definitely recommend listening to it all the way through, even if you have to break it into chunks. But uh, yeah, this is going to be our interview with, as you can see on screen, Fred Bronson. Uh, if you're not familiar with the name, you are definitely familiar with the, the work. Uh, Fred wrote the episode, The Counterclock Incident, for the animated series, though under a pseudonym, um, John Culver. And he also co-wrote with Susan Sackett the episodes Menage à Troy and The Game for The Next Generation. Uh, he's also close personal friends or was close personal friends with the late great Gene Roddenberry uh, and Major Barrett and has uh, massive friendships from his time at NBC from throughout the Star Trek world. He's also a massive science fiction geek, just like the rest of us. Um, yeah, including myself, as you can probably tell from my shirt, Choose Your yes. Spaceship which I think you can't really tell, but it's got Planet Express, TARDIS, Battlestar, Serenity, Enterprise, and the Millennium Falcon. <laughs> so, yeah. Nice. Oh, what's, um, that, what's that on your shirt? I can see oh, there. This, this is, this was, uh, it says, uh, Forever Uhura. It's a tribute mm. to Nichelle Nichols, and it was gratefully given to me, excuse me, uh, from Russ Hasselidge and the guys at the Federation, which is uh, an organisation that he has stations worldwide that support local charities so yeah if you get a chance i'll try and put the description down and uh visit and maybe there's a local chapter near you that you can help out with awesome but, that's uh, great always, yeah. always proud to uh, boost charities and things yeah yeah my my mind is now straining which ship i want oh i'm, try I'm trying <laughs> well, to i'm trying to the cursor on the thing has selected millennium falcon but i've got to be honest if the enterprise is right next door i'm not picking that no offense, Han. But <laughs> yeah, I don't know. I, can, I, I do have a, a. As much as I love the Enterprise and the TARDIS, uh, the beds in the Falcon do look kind of comfy. And, you know, I'm a bit of a sloth at times. So I think I might have to go with that one. Do stick around for the interview. There is actually a, a quite a nice story about Nichelle Nichols, actually. So that feeds in quite nicely. And uh, yeah, hopefully you will enjoy. Fred talks us through everything. We um, excuse me. We start off with well over an hour talking about all things Star Trek, so that's why you'll be finding that on this channel. Then we talk about various things, including music, uh, which Fred is hugely into, um, and his work in that area. We talk about his love of comic books because he sent me some um, letters pages from comics that he wrote to as a youngster. And uh, yeah, so there's lots to enjoy. So do take it all in and do. Uh, Please uh, like, subscribe, etc. Send us positive feedback. You'll hear all of our information in our new intro and outro anyway. Thanks to Timeless Journeys for that. We'll say that now rather than the outro. And uh, yeah, uh, DK, any last thoughts before we head in? No, I'm just going to say without further ado, here's Frank. There we go. It's a pleasure to meet you. It's uh, an honour to uh, to have spent some time with you here. And uh, thanks again Great. for agreeing to do it. <laughs> oh, I'm really glad to be here. Thanks. Glad, glad you guys asked me to do this. Which one's oh, Mike? Uh, I'm Mike. Sorry, yeah, I should have introduced That's us Mike. both. Yeah, <laughs> you are D DK. DK. So um, yeah, we've got a, a bunch of questions because, uh, as I Great. say, um, you've uh, you've had a, a massive and varied career to say the least. So uh, I I'm think we're really gonna. <laughs> because we uh, we are a Star Trek podcast, we're going to start off talking about that so the audience can breathe a sigh of relief there, maybe. Um, but, well, I think we're going to start off talking about your career and what led to Star Trek. But um, 
we have a sort of a rough order, and I think DK, you had uh, the first question for Fred, yeah? Okay. Yeah, I'm. Uh, I'm going to start with when did you decide you wanted to be a writer? Was it a gradual thing, or was there kind of a light bulb moment that prompted it? It was a light bulb, and uh, I can't explain it, but it happened when I was five years old. Wow. I, I don't know how or why, uh, just that it did. I just knew I wanted to be a writer. And, and the reason I remember that it happened then is uh, in first grade, I, would, I, wasn't, I was never very athletic. And so during recess, while the other kids were off maybe playing, you know, dodgeball or something, I had a pad of paper and I was sitting on the steps writing. I have no idea what I was writing. And I, I don't, although I've saved a lot of stuff, I, I don't have any record of my, but there I was. So somehow I knew, I don't know how. Wow, fantastic. Uh, that early writing yeah. could be like uh, Beatles manuscripts or something. Yeah. Potentially, but uh... Yeah. I'm, I'm old enough that that was even before the beat. This was more oh, wow. Elvis. This was really, oh, wow. early. yeah, yeah. Have you kept them, or did they fall by the wayside over the years? Oh, things I wrote. Yeah, yeah. Um, I actually so I moved three years ago. I am just now going through storage boxes, and I am finding a lot of things. I I did tend to save everything. Um, I wrote a, a series of stories when I was, I don't know, maybe 12. Uh, it was sort of a cross between the Hardy Boys and Adam Strange. Oh, wow. Um, <laughs> yeah. It was about two awesome. brothers who got, had a teleport beam to other planets. <laughs> and every nice. story was a different planet that they caught this beam to. Clearly stolen from Adam Strange. But... Uh, so I found those. I haven't reread them yet. The early ones are handwritten, and then a little bit later they're typewritten. So oh, I'm nice. going to sit down and read them and see what what did I write back then. Oh, I'd love we'll... to read those if you ever get them published. Probably nobody would publish them, but I don't know. I'm going to let you know after I read them. Fair enough. I might have to summarize. We'll... I I read a lot of science fiction growing up, so. Oh, that's good. Yeah, well, I think obviously being Star Trek fans, we're all big sort of sci-fi nerds in general, as you can probably yeah. tell from my Select Your Spaceship t-shirt that I'm yeah, wearing. I've got, I've got, yeah. I've got the Eurovision Song Contest. Nice. We <laughs> <laughs> are pool fans. Yeah. Oh, wow. Okay. They've already made the shirts, so. Oh, wow. Oh, wow. That's kind of a collector's item of sorts. <laughs> they not yeah. 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 Awesome. Awesome. Um, yeah, so um, obviously that that's uh, kind of explained a little bit about what brought you to writing in general. Um, so I was just curious how you got started at NBC and what was your journey to Star Trek specifically? Well, so Star Trek, as we all know, uh, premiered on September 8th, 1966, coincided with my just the start of my freshman year of college a few days later. So I graduated high school June of 66, and then along came Star Trek, and I watched that very first episode. I'd like to say I was hooked right away, but I missed week two. Right. And, but by week three, I decided I was not going to miss this again. Because, you know, no no videotaping. You had to wait to, yeah. for a rerun no. to see something. Um, 
So I, I was hooked, you know, early on, maybe not week one, but early on. And I wanted to write for it, but I was 17 years old. I didn't have any contacts. So, uh, yeah, you were, you're, now if you do the math, you're going to figure out my age. So maybe I said <laughs> much, you know, We so can I, bleep it if you like. So. <laughs> uh, it's out there online. So what am I going to do? Uh, it's okay. I'm just glad I'm still here. Uh, so I watched, uh, I took a, a class in college, a script writing class. And the assignment for the semester was to write a script for an existing property. So, of course, I wrote a script for Star Trek, but I didn't know how to get it to anybody. I found that recently, too. It's called Monument. It's Oh, wow. Actually, I reread it. It is not a bad story, but elements of it have shown up in other episodes, so I couldn't yeah. just do it. I in see. fact, um, the the main element, um, they, they find a plant, they... A landing party goes down to a planet and finds a monument of them. And they're pulled back into the past. And Spock, it's 5,000 years ago, and Spock reverts to his barbaric. This is way before all our yesterdays, where they. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I just made it up. But anyway, so I'd have to do some. Anyway, I don't know if that'll ever see the light of day anywhere. Uh, and then Orville had an episode where they find a statue of Kelly, and it reminded yeah. me a little bit of Monument. Anyway, uh, so I had my, I, I graduated, well, I had a five-year college course. And the fourth year, I was editor of our school paper. And the next semester, I thought, you know, I've been spending like 50, 60 hours a week putting out a daily newspaper. What am I going to do now to fill up my time? And I had heard that in the past, some journalism students had an internship at NBC in publicity. And I thought, no, I'd like to do that. So I went to my department. I said, can I do that? They said, yeah, if you can set it up, you'll get credit, college credit for it. So I called the NBC publicity department and they said, sure, we can do that. So for an entire semester, I went two days a week and worked with different publicists. And a month after I graduated, they hired me. So I was there for 12 years and 1970. Well, they knew I was a big science fiction fan. In fact, they knew I had marched on NBC and, you know, in season two to keep oh. Star Trek on the air. So nice. there was no hiding that my passion for Star Trek. So I was assigned every science fiction series that was on the air during my tenure there, including Man from Atlantis, Buck Rogers, The Bionic Woman, uh, Voyagers, The Powers of Matthew Starr. Some of these are not well known at all, but anyway. Oh, they are to us. <laughs> That's good. That's good. And I had a great time working in all of those shows. But in 1973, Star Trek came to Saturday morning and I was the publicist. And, you know, when, when it went off the air and after three seasons of the original series, I thought, well, that's it. No more Star Trek ever. My opportunity to write for it is gone. It'll never happen. Now, now the animated series. So it was back. I treated it 
like it was a primetime show, it was setting up interviews for Gene, and you know, it was it was I, I paid a lot of attention to it. And then I thought, you know, I should try to write for it. So season one, I did submit a few ideas, and Dorothy Fontana didn't like any of them. I found the rejection letter recently where she is no, 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 no. So season two, only six episodes. And I thought, okay, I knew I knew it was coming to an end. So once again, this is it. After this, no more Star Trek ever. I better I better write for it now. So I came up with an idea for a script. Uh, I I knew all the people at Filmation very well because I was working with them all the time. And so I submitted to Filmation. They liked it, but NBC did not. And by the way, I had to do it under another name. Not the name I knew. This was another another name. Oh, okay. Fair enough. (laughs) Michael Gordy, because I was a big Motown fan. Good Uh, choice of first name. (laughs) Michael was well. Michael's my middle name, so Michael. Oh, awesome! Yeah. <laughs> so uh, NBC didn't like it because it was I was recreating Earth's World War II on another planet, and they said, eh, "We don't really want to do a World War II on Saturday morning." So that when I set, sent that one in, there were only two slots left. They had four scripts; they only needed two more. And by the time that one got rejected, they had bought one more script. And now there's literally one slot left. That's when I came up with the counterclock incident. And I thought, I don't know if anybody caught on that I was Michael Gordy, but just in case, I'm going to find another name. I grew up in Culver City, California. John just was a random pick. It turned out John Culver at that time was one of the senators from Iowa, but I didn't know that when I (laughs) picked the name. So I came up with, you know, what I call the counterclock incident, and Filmation loved it, and NBC loved it. So I made it in, and just in the next time. Just, yeah. Yeah. That was my first sale to television. Oh, wow. That was fantastic. Great. It was, yeah, I just feel lucky that all the pieces fell into place, you know. Yeah. Well, I mean, you've you've already touched upon my my next question, which was that you worked as a publicist uh, for NBC and you did PR work on a number of fondly remembered shows. Uh, You've mentioned a lot of them, Man from Atlantis, Book Rogers, uh, things like Bonanza. uh, And what I was surprised to find out, Voyages, which I thought was a tremendous little show. I was only introduced to it a couple of years ago and thought it Uh hugely entertaining. So if any of the listeners out there haven't checked it out, please do so. It's pretty good, uh, right? Good time yeah. travel story. Yeah, yeah. Um, and it encourages kids to, to go to their local library. I love that little aspect of the show yes. at the end. How did you find it two years ago? It, was it airing somewhere? No, my uh, significant other, she watched it as a child and she mentioned it to me and I said, I've never heard of it. She says, oh, I used to love that show. So I bought her the box set DVD for uh, Christmas, Christmas and uh, I ended up sitting there watching them watching them all with her and i absolutely adore it i think it's a it's a shame it didn't last it was a great little show to work on so side note um the two stars john eric hexham who met a tragic end later and mino pelusi who was the brother of soleil moon fry who played punky brewster on 
we all went to see Poltergeist together. <laughs> uh, we were in Century City, California. We were going to do a press thing in the after, you know, in the afternoon. We had a couple hours to, and it had just opened. So we said, hey, let's go to the movies. <laughs> I saw Poltergeist with John, Eric, and Mino. Mino's also the first person this ever happened to, so with me. So he was 12. And when we were, you know, doing pre-publicity, he said to me one day, how long have you worked at NBC? And since it had been 12 years, I said, um, since right before you were born. <laughs> the first Now I can say that to a lot of people. He was the first person I ever said that to. <laughs> Fair enough. That's awesome. Did you have a favorite show to work on while you were, were at NBC? I had a few. Um, I really enjoyed working on Buck Rogers, Gil and Aaron, Felix, who played Tweaky, and Wilfred Hyde-White in season two. They were all fantastic to work with. Um, I really enjoyed BJ and the Bear, not a sci-fi show, but Greg Evigan was the star of that. Great to work with. Uh, I worked on... Now, I'm going to sound older than I am because I was only 10 years old when this show went on the air. Bonanza. Yeah. Oh, cool. <laughs> I worked the final, final season. And they treated me like I'd been there all along. They treated me like family. And I really loved working. Even though it was, I only did one the last season, I loved working on, on that show. I, I hardly had any shows I didn't like working on. Patrick Duffy was great on Man from Atlantis. Uh, yeah. I enjoy I enjoyed most of the shows I worked on. Oh, fantastic! <laughs> it's always good to have um, job satisfaction. Yes, <laughs> yes. <laughs> that's brilliant, awesome. Um, my next question you've kind of already touched on because it was going to just be how you came to write the counterclock incident. Um, obviously, you've already kind of touched on that. But um, my next uh, question after that was just going to be: uh, Do you have any sort of what are some of your fondest or, or even strangest memories of of working within the Star Trek world? I have so many. Um, <laughs> one was for the last 20 years of his life, I was friends with Gene. It, I, I first met him when I was a college freshman and it was the first season of Star Trek. And I thought, I'm, I'd like to interview him for the college paper. This is way before I became the editor. Uh, it was one of the first things I ever wrote for the paper. I went to the entertainment editor and said, I'd like to do an interview with Gene Roddenberry. He said, if you can get that, we'll, we'll run it, of course. So I got it. Now, that didn't begin a friendship. That was just, I went in, I interviewed him. It was great. And, you know, as far as I knew, and I'm sure far, he didn't give it any thought, that was the end of that. But then when I went to work at NBC, uh, before the animated Star Trek, I was the publicist for Questor. And oh, yeah. so, I, yeah, yeah, I loved working with Robert Foxworth and Mike Farrell. That was, that was really loved. I, you know, I really, NBC picked it up, but then they pulled the plug after they picked it up, as we all know. So that's where I really started working with Gene. And then, uh, and then the animated, like I say, I said a lot of interviews for him while that was on. And then same year of the second season, 74, he had, he had an assistant when he was based at Warner Brothers and uh, Gene was going to leave the lot and the the assistant didn't want to go with him because he, he had seniority at Warner Brothers. If he left, he'd lose all that. 
So Jean needed a new assistant. I had a friend who was out of work and I had known her for about four years at this point, uh, Susan Sackett. And so I arranged, it's, it's a longer story that I'm going to tell now, but through me, Susan got an interview with Jean and he hired her. And she started on his birthday in 1974, on August 19th, and she was with him until he died. So 17 years. So that really solidified the friendship because, first of all, he was very grateful that I sent him Susan. And years later, uh, he, he was looking for a personal assistant at home, someone to drive him. And I sent a friend of mine over, and he got that job. So... <laughs> The two people who were really supporting him were were through me, and but we became friends, and uh, I I have a lot of really really great memories of hanging out with Jean. Yeah, that's I cool. You, yeah, I mean you've touched it. My next question, you've pretty much answered it already. It was how did you uh, become friends? Did it take you time to warm to each other? But uh, do you have any particular memories about Jean? As a person, any incidents that stand out in your mind that our audience may not know about? Or a few, a few, and they're from all different, you know, points of time during these seventeen years. One was like nineteen ninety. So I would, once Susan started working for him, I would go over and have lunch with them, maybe a couple times a month. So years later, in nineteen ninety. We're having lunch in, in the commissary at Paramount, and somehow the subject turned to legacy. And I don't know where this came to me from, but I said, you know, Gene, they're still going to be writing stories about Kirk and Spock in the 21st century. And he said, yeah, and they'll do it better than I did it. You know, that was him. But, you know, along comes the first J.J. Abrams movie in 19, in, sorry, in 2000. Nine, yeah, and I thought, God, I was right. They're still writing stories. About <laughs> what do you know? I was I was comparing it to how at the t they had done a play in L.A. about adult Tom Sawyer and Huckleberry Finn, with yeah. Mark Leonard and Walter Koenig as the two stars, and that made me think. Well, they're still writing stories about Tom Sawyer and Huckleberry Finn. There's still going to be writing stories about Kirk and Spock. That was my jumping off yeah. spot. Uh, other stories, gosh. Well, you know, Gene was very generous and would never let Susan or me pay for a meal ever, except on his birthday. We, we were allowed <laughs> to take him out on his birthday. So the last three years uh, before he, he was too ill in 91 to really go out on his birthday. But the three years previous, the first year we had, we just did a commissary lunch. The second year, I thought, I got to top that. So there was a Bank of America building in downtown LA. And on the top floor, which was like the 52nd floor or something, they had a dining room with some private rooms. And the private rooms were, you know, a full window. And you could see the whole city of Los Angeles oh, wow. spread out in front of you. So we went there for lunch. Then I thought the next year, I got to top that. <laughs> so uh, we went down to uh, Newport Beach is about an hour drive away. 
And we went to the Ritz-Carlton Hotel and, and Laguna Niguel, actually, near Newport Beach, and had a great lunch. And our waiter's name was Wesley. Gene's <laughs> <laughs> middle name, not let alone, you know, Wesley Crusher. So yeah. we made, we, we, I had to say to the waiter, by the way, this gentleman's middle name is Wesley. And, you know, anyway, um, the next year he was too ill, but I was going to get on a plane and fly to San Francisco for lunch. That was the plan. But, uh, you know, the last six weeks of his life, he, he was really uh, homebound, you know, not coming into the office. So. There's a lot more. Um, Chicago in May of 91 was just a few months before he passed away. He was getting an award at the Humanist Foundation or Society. I'm not sure what they call it. And so Susan and I went to Chicago. He had been in Washington, D.C. So he met us in Chicago and surprised us by picking us up at the airport. And we were whisked off to the... Um, John Hancock Building, which is a hundred stories high, and had drinks overlooking the city of Chicago. But there was a lot of fun and a lot of laughter, and and oh, and of course, you know, so pitching stories uh, for next generation. I'm jumping ahead here, if that's okay. <laughs> yeah, but, it's fine. So the season one of next. Well, first of all, you know. In 1986, they were having, I was not part of it, but they were having meetings at Paramount, Gene and David Gerald was in the room and Susan and a few oh, other wow. people developing Next Generation. And so Susan would tell me, well, all right, the captain's name is Picard and the doctor is Beverly Crusher and she has a daughter named Leslie and yada, yada, yada. We know that changed. Yeah. And I started thinking up ideas. So... Season one, I actually went in and pitched because by that time I was in the Writers Guild. So, you know, if you're in the Guild and you're represented, you could go in and, and pitch to the producers. I pitched to a producer named Bob Lewin, who was there, season one. And the, the, he, he liked one of my ideas, which uh, I called the mnemonic enemy. And we open on the bridge and Troy is in command and Crusher's on the bridge. And we soon realized there are no men on the ship. And the women have no memory that there were ever men on the ship. Uh, turns out the men have been stolen for breeding stock and the women's memories erased. So he liked it and he said, unfortunately, we have another script. It's not the same story, but it is about men, you know, the division of men and women. And I like yours, so I'm going to fight for you. Well, he didn't win the fight. Yeah. And Angel One was yeah. the, oh. the script that got made. <clears throat> it, was just, it was just too close in, in thought. So season, Susan, Susan had also pitched and didn't succeed. So season two, we decided to team up. And this time, Gene said, all right, this, this year, just pitch to me. He wasn't, you know, taking pitches. Uh, he was still very active and still there every day. But, you know, Maurice Hurley was the showrunner season two, and he was the person you pitched to. But Gene said, pitch to me, and if I like it, I'll get it, you know, get it to Maurice. So we came up with an idea. It's going to sound a little cliched now because it's been done, 
But I promise you when we did it, it had never been done before. Right. And uh, we called it Past Lives. A Starfleet historian from the future comes back and accidentally causes the death of Picard. So they've got to create a time loop and, you know, yeah. make it that she never comes back. Uh, so Gene liked it and bought the story, which is the first step, I'm writing a narrative, not a script. Well, nobody else liked it. Oh. We liked it. And even now, reading it back, I thought it was a pretty good. But they, Rick Berman had a thing back then. He didn't want to do time travel at all. I don't know why. Because, as you know, oh, later you. on, in fact, when yeah. he wrote, yeah. yeah. Uh, but at season two, he didn't want to do it. So then uh, there was a change in showrunners. Michael Pillar came in season three. And we thought, hey, we've got a shot. And Michael Pillar said, no, I don't really like that story. Oh. So, but Michael let us come in and pitch. And so Susan and I came up with 12 ideas. Nowadays, they tell you, come in with three or four. Don't No one's going to listen to you with 12 <laughs> ideas. Right. But we came in with 12 ideas. And we met with the whole writing staff. First, though, we took Gene out to lunch at a Mexican restaurant in Beverly Hills and said, look, we know we're pitching to Michael, but we just want to share our ideas with you. And if there's anything you hate, we won't pitch that. Well, he liked all 12. So we felt, okay, we're going to go in with all 12. So we're in the meeting and we start. And it's either, no, uh, we're never going to do that. We're already doing that. Yeah, We literally went through 11 of our ideas that had not touched him yet our 12th idea was based on an o henry short story called the ransom of red chief and we called it the ransom of mrs troy aliens kidnap mrs troy and can't wait to give her back <laughs> and michael he, he he said he liked it but we didn't feel like he wasn't quite there yet and i don't know why i said this but i i said look we all know there's going to be a Mrs. Troy story this season. You know, there'd only been one already, but I said, and I think we have the best one. And Michael said, well, you kind of do. All right, we're going to, you know, write the story. And so we did that and they gave us the go ahead to write the script. They could have easily written the script themselves, but so our original title was The Ransom of Mrs. Troy. But the story developed, you know, with Ferengi, not just any aliens, but Ferengi. And then we called it Peace of Mind, P-I-E-C-E, -E, because they uh -huh. wanted a piece of her mind. And although, you know, we got the go-ahead for script and all of that, Michael Pilwer said, we don't want to do a, a title that's a play on words. So come <laughs> up, I know, come up with another title. So Susan and I went to dinner in Burbank this time. And we lived like five minutes from each other. So, And we came up with all these stupid titles that we didn't really mean, like my stepmother is a Ferengi and things like that. So <laughs> finally, we're, we're driving you know, back home and some this phrase just popped into my head, pas de deux. And I thought, no, it's not two, it's three. It's more of a menage a trois. Menage a trois. 
<laughs> obviously a play on words. So yeah. the next morning, Susan went into Gene and said, uh, Fred, Michael wants a new title. Fred and I came up with Benaja à Troy, and we really like it. So Gene wrote a memo to Michael Pillar saying, Fred and Susan have a new title, and I really like it. It's Menage à Troy. Since Gene really liked it, that's that's how we got oh, Menage à Troy to be the title of the episode. Oh, fantastic. Oh, and so, you know, we were freelance, right? And, and, and ter- even though Susan worked for Gene, we weren't on staff. Well, freelance writers especially are not invited to be on the set. I think it's because they're afraid you're going to go, that's not what I meant. So, (laughs) (laughs) but Gene, Susan went to Gene and said, you know, it's our first sale and we'd like to be on. He said, go ahead. So for seven days, we were on the set, but we got special dispensation. When they made the game, we only went one day because we didn't want to, you know, we're out our welcome. Yeah. Touching up on that, uh, on the past lives thing, is there anything that you would have pitched for the show had the animated series continued or the original series? Or, now that we've touched upon it, on The Next Generation, is there anything that once the game came out you had in mind to pitch further? We did pitch further. We just since after Gene died, I don't know if it was because he wasn't there anymore. I, I really don't know. We did pitch. I remember one pitch to Michael Pillar. Um, again, this is something they did later, but at this point they hadn't done it. I said, all right, we open on the Enterprise, and this is happening, and this is happening, and the Enterprise blows up. And then we go backward and find <laughs> out why, you know, what happened. And Michael said to me, oh, you mean like the musical Merrily We Roll Along, which is a Sondheim musical where the story goes backward." And I said, well, exactly like that, because that was the inspiration for the story. <laughs> he said, well, we're not going to do that. We all know in Voyager, they did a story that went backward, you know, with Kess. So, but that was a few years later, you know, what, what are you going to do, right? <laughs> but yeah, we pitched, we pitched, but uh, we did we we made no further sales. I came close. Uh, I went, year, again, this is a few years later. Uh, Deep Space Nine, I think it was like season five or six, and I went in, uh, and Iris Stephen Bear, although he wasn't taking pitches, he knew me from Next Generation, he said, well, pitch to me, I said, oh, great, and he liked my story, but it really involved Jack's, Dax, sorry, um, Terry Farrell's character, and then she left. And so I think that was sort of the end. I probably could have adapted it for her replacement, but it really felt like a a Dax and Worf story. Uh, It was sort of an Adam and Eve thing where they're transported to a planet and they're the only two people and they're going to start a whole civilization. But the Enterprise has to find them. Uh, yeah, um, it's, it's uh, apologies. It's slightly backtracking a little bit, and you've probably answered this oh, question a lot. It's because I jumped ahead. So, when you wrote the counterclock incident, did did you ever imagine that a character who you brought to life would eventually be realised in live action decades later? And um, have you had a chance to see Adrian Holmes's performance? And what did you think of it? Of, um, of Admiral Robert April Commodore, of course, in your script. But, uh, yes, yeah. good, good questions. Well, at the time, no. <laughs> 
<laughs> First of all, I thought, remember, there's no more Star Trek ever after mm -hmm. the animated. So I didn't see any future for Robert April. Um, th thinking him up, the, the process was that since they were the, the our crew was going to become too young to run the ship, I needed an older adult who would revert to young adulthood and could get them home. And so I thought, well, who would that be? And I thought, did they ever say that Pike was the first captain? So I went back and rewatched the menagerie. They never said, only that he was Kirk, came before Kirk, but they never said he was the first captain. I thought, well, then I think there's room for me to come up with Pike's predecessor. Yeah. Uh, and I didn't have a name yet, but uh, just the, the idea, the character. And then, and I found this book today in my storage boxes, The Making of Star Trek, which was the first book ever about Star Trek. Yeah. I found the paperback tonight. Well, in that book, there was a list of names that Gene had considered. Nine names, as I recall. Obviously, Kirk was on there, Pike was on there, and Robert April was on there. Now, at that moment, I did not know that Robert April was a character he originally used in an episode of Have Gun Will Travel. I only found yeah. that out years years later. But I thought, yeah, of all the names that hadn't been used yet, I liked Robert April the best. So yeah. I named him Robert April thinking, why not pick a name that I know Gene's going to like, right? You know, I mean, <laughs> what could it have hurt? So that's how I came up with the name. But no, at that moment, I thought, no, they're never going to see him again. But then he did appear in other novels. He appeared in, well... Let me tell you a story. So now it's uh, 2009, and J.J. Abrams is making his first movie. Yeah. And at the same time, I get invited along with a few other people, including B. Joe Trimble and David Gerald and Chris Duan, to be interviewed for a DVD extra, all the people that Gene picked to be extras in the motion picture. Uh, a lot of fans auditioned, but he 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 handpicked a few people that we didn't have to audition. So they were interviewing us in 2009 about doing that. We filmed it back in 1978. At the end of the interview, which was on a Paramount stage, they said, we want to walk you over to stage 18, which is where you did this 30 years ago, and just do so, uh, have you walking up to the set. We're not going to go inside. Just walk up to the stage. So we went over, and that's where they were filming the first J.J. Abrams Star Trek movie. So I'm standing there with Chris as we're waiting to go in, and a golf cart pulls up, and Chris says, hi, J.J., because he'd already <laughs> filmed a bit for the movie. And J.J. says, hi, Chris. Comes over to talk, and Chris introduces me as someone who wrote and animated a couple episodes. And J.J. says... Oh, have you seen the new sets? And I said, kind of high security. So no. He said, do you want to? Oh, wow. <laughs> yeah, if we can. Next thing I know, they're putting wristbands on us and we're signing NDAs <laughs> and we're ushered in and JJ's with us. And we're there for about 20 minutes. And I think I'm a big JJ Abrams fan. I love Lost. I thought, this is my chance. Have a, have a word with JJ. So I went over and I said, um, JJ, I understand you've got uh, Captain Pike in the film. He said, yeah, yeah, we're using that character in the movie. And I said, well, you know, in my animated episode, I introduced Robert April. And he said, yeah, he's not in the movie. 
<laughs> we had a good laugh. Flash forward to 2013, and they're making the second movie, shrouded in secrecy. If you remember, we don't. Is it con? Is it? We don't. We don't know. It's all a secret. Yeah. And then in February, uh, they had a. I was invited, but they had a press conference in JJ's office. And now I'm reading one of the reporters' writes, based on what I saw and heard today at JJ Abrams' office. I think one of the major characters in the next movie is Robert April from the animated series. I go, like, what? <laughs> so I call the reporter. He says, yeah, I saw a storyboard on a desk, and it's Robert April in the storyboard. I thought, oh, my God, it's going to happen after all these years. Well, as we all know, it didn't happen. The storyboard he saw was for the prequel comic book. Yeah. Which was oh, about Robert April. I was going to mention that. <laughs> so, yeah. That's what, so, so suddenly it's 48 years later. It's 2022. And Robert April in live action. Well, of course, in Discovery, we had a, his name on, you know, mm -hmm. on a screen. So that was something. Yeah. But yeah. now there's going to be live action Robert April. So I was, yeah, I was blown away. I was very happy. I thought the Adrian did a. I don't know him. I'm just saying his name. I'm calling him on a first name basis. <laughs> I thought Adrian did a fantastic job. I did tweet, you know, as you know, there was a lot of controversy, all, yeah. which yeah. I did not subscribe to. But I, so I tweeted very much on purpose to him saying, thank you for bringing this character I created 48 years ago to life. You did an amazing job, loved your performance. And of course, he retweeted it and all that, and and replied. Uh, so I thought that was very very nice of him. But yeah, and there he was in about two more episodes after that. Yeah. So you know, I, I'm sure there'll be a, a Robert April series. No, there won't be an April series. <laughs> well, you never know. You never yeah, know. yeah, you never know. So, I've got a title for it. Really? Oh, go ahead. I want to hear. It. Or would you rather keep it secret just in case? No, no, I'll tell you. <laughs> Why not? Star Trek. The early years. Right, right, right. I, I yeah. When we both saw, um, I think it was the pilot of Strange New Worlds and saw uh, Admiral April, I think we both said, now we want to see that series. Because yeah. right. when Pike appeared in Discovery, right. that everyone was like, I want to see what happened on Pike's Enterprise. And we genuinely both and said in our review, now we want to see Adrian Holmes lead yeah. the, the April series. You know? That's part of the movement. <laughs> Let's let's yeah. let's pick it them. That seemed to yeah. work to keep the original series on the air. So um, yeah, exactly. Fun. Well, you know, you get if if you create a character, and someone else uses that character in the script, you would under Writers Guild rules, you would get a character payment. Oh, the animated cool. series was not under Writers Guild jurisdiction. Ah, okay. Nowadays, <laughs> many animated series like The Simpsons they are, but back mm -hmm. then they weren't. That meant I got one flat fee, no residuals ever, and no character payment. But you know that those are the rules, so it's yeah. okay. But it would have been nice. Yes. Yeah. Well, you'll forever be associated with the character, so you you have that on your uh, on your. I have at least I have two things I've contributed to canon. One is Robert April, and the other is Umax. <laughs> <laughs> Which I made oh, up. Oh dear! Yeah. And then it kept showing up in other series. I thought, well, I guess I made a contribution to canon. 
<laughs> you invented a Ferengi kink. <laughs> yeah, exactly. My twisted mind. What can I say? Well, we were going for comedy, and so yeah, yeah, yeah. Of course, yeah. I thought it'd be funny if she was absent-mindedly stroking his ear, and then she finds out what that's doing to him. And she pulls her hand. <laughs> yeah. Uh, regarding the uh, the controversy uh, with Robert April in Strange New Worlds, as you know, since the advent sure. of Discovery back in 2017. There's been a certain subsection of fans that have taken a dislike to Kurtzman's time on the franchise over recent years, claiming it's not Star Trek. Most recently, they've been quoting William Shatner, who stated at a Comic-Con panel earlier this year that Gene would be, and I quote, rolling in his grave at some of the newer additions to the franchise. Now, as a longtime friend of Gene and someone that knew him well, what are your thoughts on this? I mean, what do you think Gene would make of the new shows being produced today? I honestly think he would love them, especially Strange New Worlds. Um, so I don't know if people know this, but when Rick Berman uh, and Michael Pillar brought Deep Space Nine to Gene, he said, absolutely not. And five days after he died, they announced that they were going to do Deep Space Nine. Now, I had seen Gene change his mind about things. I think he would have changed his mind about Deep Space Nine eventually. He never had the chance. I think he would have liked it. Yes, it wasn't a starship. It was a different take. Although, of course, they got a ship later on. But yeah, of uh, it basically was not, you know, exploring. It was a space station. But I think there was room for that, and they did some brilliant episodes and and uh, story arcs. There has not been a series yet that I haven't liked. And Absolutely. I think, I, including, I love Lower Decks. I love uh, Prodigy. They're brilliant. And what they do, yeah. and that there's room for all these shows at once. I mean, who would have ever thought we'd have five concurrent series? Know, yeah. Like my yeah, yeah. <laughs> so I think... I don't think Gene would be spinning in his grave. I think I think that was just wrong. Mm. Yeah, fair enough. Yeah. Um, yeah, thank you. Sure. Uh, uh, just uh, sorry. Go ahead. <laughs> no, no, go on, man. Uh, so yeah, my next question was going to be: uh, you kind of um, were addressing already your next generation episodes, and you've talked already about how you came uh, to them. But my question about that was basically. When Next Gen started, I, I think the more geeky fans know that the Ferengi were intended to be a serious antagonist to replace like the Klingons or the Romulans. Yes. Um, but by the time you get to Menage Troy, they kind of already started their evolution, as you touched upon, into more comic relief or uh, sort of comedic characters. Um, yeah. did, were you aware of that change and how did it influence how you wrote the episode or did you just not even realize it would be the Ferengi maybe? <laughs> no, no, we we purposely made it Ferengi, and and we purposely wanted it to be not not just a comedy, but uh, a drama with comedic overtones. Yeah. I think it's funny now to think it's about a kidnapping, an abduction, but it's a comedy. But <laughs> yeah. go figure. Yeah. Um, so no, we they had they had evolved at that point to a to being the the having comedic overtones and so it was very much on purpose that we picked them to be the aliens and and to be able to have some fun with it especially you know in the teaser when 
you know, that scene between Luxana and the, the Damon Tog. Uh, I really just really enjoyed that. Actually, one of the funniest lines to me in the show, and I wrote it, so who am I to say? <laughs> it's, but it's subtle, is when uh, it's in the teaser, when in order to get away from the Ferengi, she comes over to Picard to engage him in conversation. And he's got the, the, the Betazoid, um, right in Grax. And he says, uh, oh, yes, yes. I was just going to show right in Grax the new um, um, door <laughs> mechanisms. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. 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 The funny. Oh, that. And at the end, when he under his breath says to Wesley, warp nine. Anyway. Yeah. We try to have some fun with it. Definitely. I was impressed with Patrick Stewart's kind of comedy chops because he was no, known as a Shakespearean actor. And sort of when he's delivering the over-the-top soliloquy at the end of, no, it's better to have loved and lost, I was I was quite impressed with that. But um, We yeah. love, <laughs> love doing that. And, we, you know, standing there and Patrick Stewart is, is saying your lines. <laughs> yeah. that, that was an absolute highlight. Oh, one more thing about, so when we took, Gene to lunch to go over our, our we already had the idea that they were going to transport and within the Ferengi ship and their clothes wouldn't go with them and we <laughs> said can we do that and Gene said yeah why not of course you can you can do that we also went to him because we knew he wanted to promote Wesley we just mm -hmm. didn't know what episode it was going to be in so we went to him and kind of begged can we have that in our episode he said yeah you can, <laughs> you can do that at the end Brilliant. Oh, that's excellent. Um, yeah, and related to that, again, you've already mentioned that the script was always going to be a Mrs. Troy episode. That was the genesis. Um, was it intimidating at all, knowing that you were writing for Majel Barrett, for your sort of your friend and boss's wife, I guess? In the, well, in I, I, I knew Majel pretty well by that time. I see. So it, it, it wasn't. Uh, you know, of course, we did run it by Gene first. And uh, since he was down with it, and he said, you know, he said, Major will be too, because he said, she's an actress. If you give her a good script, she's going to do it. And uh, she did. She didn't, to my knowledge, didn't change anything, you know, which can happen, of course. Um, yeah. But she she did the script as written. Uh, I... I I got to know her during the animated series because I had this idea, you know, I was in publicity, not promotion, but I came up with sort of a promotion idea. I went to my boss and I said, can we make Star Trek t-shirts uh, for the animated series and give them to the press at the next press store? And he said, yeah, yeah, we can do that. So I designed with Filmation's help, I designed a shirt that had the Enterprise shooting its phasers and it said, Star Trek lives. And on the back, the NBC logo on Saturday morning. Right. <laughs> well, Majel, I guess I either told her or she found out about it and said, I want to make the, you know, the same shirt without the NBC logo for Lincoln Enterprises and sell them. So we went downtown to downtown LA to the garment district together to pick out shirts and and produce them together with so she got hers to sell on Lincoln, I got mine to hand out to the press. Oh, awesome. So I, I knew her by that, you know. And 
back when Rod was born, uh, it was during the animated series. So I took a photographer up to the house and got the first photos of Jean and, and Majel cradling baby Rod in their arms. And that got picked up everywhere all over the country. Oh, oh that's great. Yeah. 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 Uh, yeah. You've said that your inspiration for the game was a Tetris addiction, but yes. the story was developed down a darker direction. How did you feel about the way it ended up after Brandon Braga's teleplay? Well, there's a long story about how that all developed, and I'll give you the, I won't, I won't, I'll give you a shorter version, one that'll fit within the show. Yeah. So uh, we pitched the idea of the game to Michael Pillar, and it was so early that uh, it would have been a season four episode if they had made it when we pitched it. We pitched it as Wesley's going away episode. We didn't know if they had, you know, what their plans were. We knew, you know, that he was leaving the series, that Will was going to leave. And so we thought, well, this could be his exit story. So uh, Michael liked it enough to give us the go-ahead to write the story. We turned in our first draft of that, and he said, eh, it's not quite there, so do this, this, and this, and it'll be good. So we followed his notes. We turned it back in, and he said, no, it's still not quite what I want. So here, do this and this and this, and then it's going to be good. So we did that, and he said, still not there. I, I don't think you're getting it. I'm going to have somebody else take a crack at it. So someone else wrote a draft, and he didn't like it. And so he had someone else write a draft of the story, and he didn't like it. And the game went into the dead file. Now, I only heard this later on, but a year later, Rick Berman went to Michael and said, whatever happened to that story about the game that Fred and Susan came in with? And Michael said, oh, it's in the dead file. And Rick said, no, I like that one. We're going to do it. So it got reactivated a year later. And at that point, Brandon had been a Writers Guild intern. He was brand new. And they gave it to Brandon, which was fine. I mean, we were we had been separated from it by a year now yeah, and in fact it became wesley's coming back story so much time <laughs> had passed the irony is that brandon's draft kind of circled back to our original story oh, I, I had a lot of the element <laughs> that we went in with that they didn't like so it was fine the way it worked out you know we get story credit along with brandon and he gets teleplay credit it all worked out. We were fine with it. We were happy it got made. So, brilliant. Yeah. Um, oh, speaking of, sorry, well, ahead, one sorry. more thing about the game. Yeah. That was not our original title. All oh, right. Okay. <laughs> I thought we had a great, we didn't pick the game. I thought we had a really great title. And I took it to Michael Peller and he said, We'll get sued. Our title was Advanced to Boardwalk. <laughs> oh, Parker Brothers will sue us. And I said, no, Parker Brothers will love it. That boardwalk is in the title. Yeah. He, would, he wouldn't even ask. He wouldn't even try. Wow. So it became the game. Oh, okay. It was more important to us that it got made than what the title was. Of course. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. 
Um, I'll, I'll just say before Mike asks the next question, I actually, because uh, it, it was very hard uh, when Next Generation first came out to get hold of uh, the tapes. And then later on, when they did release release them to purchase, I didn't have the disposable income to get them. So I kind of drifted away from Next Generation for a while. I came back because of that episode, the game. Really? And it, yeah, it made me a complete... Oh. Uh, it's, it's ironic, but it got me addicted to the show again. <laughs> Which was our plan from the very beginning. <laughs> uh, that's very, I, I love hearing that. That's great. Well, awesome. I'm glad I could help. Sorry I got you addicted, but I'm glad I could Oh, help. no, 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 no. It's, it's been a ride. Yeah, definitely. For all of us, right? Yeah, it has. Yeah. Oh, we wouldn't touch it. Definitely, yeah. Awesome. Um, speaking of Brad and Braga, as we were, um, he's now working over at the Orville. Um, yes. which I noticed that you tweet a lot about, and obviously you've already brought it up in this interview. Um, so you're clearly a fan of the show, um, but I just wondered if you could uh, give a little bit of an explanation maybe as to why, and more importantly, help me pitch it to my co-host here who still hasn't really delved into it yet. Well, I love the Orville. It is, Seth MacFarlane has done an amazing job. And as much as I love the first two years, Season three. I agree. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> just raised the bar so high. Yep. Yeah. Obviously, Seth loves Star Trek, and this is his way of expressing it's an homage. It's not a not a ripoff, right? Yeah. <laughs> uh, uh, I absolutely love the Orville and any Star Trek fan, any Star Trek fan, DK <laughs> would would I think would love. The Orville. There's so many callbacks to Star Trek. There was a scene where they assembled the whole crew, and it reminded me exactly of the scene where I was an extra in the motion picture. I thought, I don't know if it was meant to, but it really. And then, of course, uh, not that he knew anything about my monument script, but seeing Kelly as a statue. Yeah, definitely. So, but so that's not really a callback, because nobody knows about that. But there are a lot of things in there. And it's season three is oh, so brilliant. Good. Yeah. And of course, like everybody else, I'm down with Renew the Orville for season mm -hmm. four. I, I I hope Hulu will do that. Yeah. I think moving to a streaming platform and then not being restricted by network timing and things like that really did help the show. And it's it surprised me and it really got me emotional many a time in season three. So uh, I want to see that fourth season as well. I think, and, and DK, I don't know, tell me if this is true for you. I think a lot of people didn't want to watch it because it was billed in the, in the beginning as a comedy. Well, yeah. it's not a comedy. There, yeah. there are comedic overtones, but so there were in Star Trek. It has gotten to some very serious, heavy topics. And my all-time favorite episode so far is uh, Twice in a Lifetime. I won't spoil it for you, DK, but uh, let's just say it's a time travel episode. Yeah. <laughs> I think it's the best episode so far. And, they've, and most of the episodes in season three look like motion pictures. They're so, anyway, DK, please. Yeah. Please watch and let me know what you think. Okay. Well, I will do. I, As you say, uh, I think the thing that's been putting me off is thinking that it is a, a comedy or it was a comedy. And I've had, obviously, Mike and now you tell me it's not the case. I, I definitely give it a go. 
I think it was a huge mistake for Fox to promote it that way. Yep. And yeah, season season one had more comedy than it's not like they don't have any now, but season one had a little more. But still, they did some really serious, excellent stories worthy of Star Trek. Definitely. A friend of mine um, tweeted out just literally a couple of days ago about twice in a lifetime because they'd finally got to it. And I was like, oh, thank you for bringing up that trauma again. <laughs> I was just over it, you know. <laughs> but uh, yeah, saying no more just in case DK does get to it eventually, hopefully. I, I definitely will. I definitely will now. <laughs> yeah. And, you, and you, this you, season you one, too, quickly so you can get to season three. Uh, yeah. I, I watched twice in a lifetime three times so far. Wow. And I'll probably watch it again. <laughs> Again, yeah, wow. brilliant. Well, uh, well, I'm going to ask: Are there any other iterations of the Trek franchise, or indeed Arville, that you would like to write for any of the new shows, perhaps? Well, probably the one I'd like to write for the most would be Strange New Worlds, because it's so close to the original. I think it would be very, very difficult to pitch to either. First of all. Everything is staff written now, so there really is not an opportunity to go in, and and, and that's just the way every series is now. Unlike Next Generation and you know, and Deep Space Nine, so there's not even the chance to go in and pitch. But when you have a season long arc, you really can't go in with an idea and think it's going to fit in to what they're doing for an entire season. I think I could come up with Strange New Worlds ideas. I, I actually have a lot of next generation ideas that have never, you know, gone beyond. And I found a lot of them as I'm going through my storage boxes, including one that I wrote based on all the information I was getting before I ever saw an episode. I wrote an episode just based on who I knew the characters were. And I found that the other day. So I reread it and I thought, yeah, the dialogue doesn't sound right because I had never experienced them speaking before. I think, yeah. Uh, I would change that. But the story idea, I think, would still work. <laughs> yeah. Okay. It could be an Orville episode, but I don't, you know, it's staff written. So yeah. I, I I don't think there's a chance of, of really even going into pitch. Yeah. yeah, that's. A, I'd love to see these stories someday. I'm surprised you haven't been approached by anybody to publish them as like lost, unmade Star Trek yeah. treasures or anything. You know, I have. I have thought about, and I'm. It's been so long since I uh, pitched anything. You know, to the to Simon and Schuster. Uh, I did. I guess maybe more than ten years ago, I was pitching ideas, uh, and. I don't even know who to pitch to now, but I think some of them maybe could be novels. I'm going to uh, post this interview out and maybe tag them on Twitter and say, tag, come on, Simon and yeah, Schuster, get on it. There's uh, rich <laughs> material here. <laughs> that would be great. Thank you. <laughs> awesome. Um, I think yours was the next question, DK. Yeah? Oh, no, it was oh, mine. Yeah. Sorry. It was yours. Nope. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, you've kind of already kind of done this for us, um, so we appreciate it. But do you have any other kind of special memories that stand out about anybody that worked with you on Star Trek? And again, you must have hundreds and hundreds of stories, and you've been asked this a lot. But I yeah. do. I can give you my two absolute best ones. Please, yeah, absolutely. Definitely, yeah. Okay. The first one takes place when I'm 19 years old, and season three of the original series is in first run. And a friend of mine tells me, oh, I went to the set. I, I had a set visit. I said, how did you do that? 
that, oh, it turns out anybody can call. You just call and they'll <laughs> give you an appointment time to come visit. Yeah. Is really? She said, yeah. So she went she went to see Day of the Dove being filmed. Oh. So I called and I got an appointment time. 4 p.m. December 31st, 1968. You can bring a friend. So I was 19. I had a friend who was 13, but he was a huge Star Trek fan. Ironically, also went on to write for Next Generation. Uh, Mark Zickery, who wrote the oh, first yeah, episode and and is known for a lot of things, right? So Mark was 13, and I said, your Christmas gift is I'm taking you to the set of Star Trek. So I was driving, 19, I could drive a car now, and I drove us over to Paramount. We went to the production office, and a gentleman said, I'm going to walk you over to the set. He walked us over and said, it's 4 o'clock. Stay a half hour and then leave. And he took off. So we're two unchaperoned kids, but everybody knows that you know we had this guy walked us over, and so they knew we were okay. But we were free to just stand there and watch them film. So a couple of things about that. Um, first of all, it was New Year's Eve, right? And uh they wanted to, I think everybody wanted to go home and get ready for New Year's. Yeah. And at one point, someone who I realized later was an assistant director said, come on, people, last show of the season, let's get this done. And Majel, who I had not met yet, walked by me and said under her breath, huh, last episode, period. And I went, not out loud, no, because <laughs> nobody knew it was canceled yet. But I knew she and Jean were an item. So I thought, if she's saying it's over, it's over. So And it was turned about Intruder. So it was the last episode of season three, last episode ever. Mm -hmm. So they're filming in sickbay. And the only, the only regular cast members on the stage that day were um, Majel, DeForest Kelly, and Shatner. And of course, he's filming scenes, you know, playing a woman. We didn't, we didn't know what the plot was. We thought it was a little strange. We're trying to figure out what's going on. But 4.30 rolls around, and no one's really paying attention to us. Or, or, you know, no one seemed to care if we stayed. Or So I said, let's just stay. So we stayed. And at 5.30, they wrapped for the day. So we're walking out. And we noticed on our way out, there's a little walled off section of the stage with a door and we could see in mirrors and sinks. So it was a makeup area. And as we're walking out, DeForest Kelly walked in and my and Mark says, let's go say hi. And I said, you know, we've overstayed our welcome. We probably shouldn't bother and we really should go. So we walk outside and I think, wait a minute. Of course we should say hello to him. What am I, crazy? He said, come on, Mark. We're going in. So we walk back in and we go to the doorway. He's leaning over the sink, washing his face. And he looks up and it is not DeForest Kelly, who must have walked in and walked out. It's Shatner. And he looks up at us, soap is dripping down his face. He's not wearing his toupee. And he sees two kids standing in the doorway. And he says to us, I'm not going to try to imitate him, but his words were, 
would you get out? <laughs> would you get out of the makeup room? So we left. But we were unscarred. We just thought, you know, well, that was an adventure. It didn't bother us. And I'm still telling the story almost 60 years later. So Yeah, that's brilliant. Awesome. My second best story took place a few months earlier. Somehow I got the home address of Michelle Nichols. So I said to my friends, here's what we're going to do. We're going to mock up a petition to keep Star Trek on the air. And we're going to go to the house next to her on either side. And then we're going to go to her house. Like, we don't know who lives there. We're just going through the neighborhood, collecting petitions to keep Star Trek on the air. So we go. And two of us walk up to the door, ring the bell. It's about 6 o'clock at night, but it was dark out, so I guess it was winter. And the door opens, and a tall black guy without a shirt on answers the door. And I think to myself, we've interrupted something. <laughs> I don't know if we did, but... <laughs> He said, hello. I said, hi, uh, don't want to bother you, but we're going through your neighborhood tonight uh, with petitions to keep Star Trek on the air. And he said, really? And I said, yeah, would you sign? He said, yeah, I'll sign. So he signs. He says, do you want another signature? Now, I never let on that I knew who lived there. <laughs> I said, oh, yeah, it'd be great. So he closed the door. He goes off. He comes back, opens the door, hands us the thing, and that's it. Well, yeah, of course, so she signed it. Now, 25 years later, I'm reading an interview that Michelle did for the Star Trek Fan Club magazine. And in the interview, she says, the show was so popular, people actually came through my neighborhood with petitions to keep it on the air. I thought, oh, my God, I never told her because I, I knew her at this point. <laughs> yeah. I, it never occurred to me to say anything. It was something, you know, I never thought about it. Three months later, Susan and I went to the theater to see this play with Mark Leonard and Walter Koenig as Tom Sawyer and Huckleberry Finn. And Michelle and George are sitting right in front of us. And Mark Zickery and his wife are sitting on my left. It's been so many years that he's now an adult and he's married. So I said, Michelle, I, I read your interview in the fan club magazine. Oh, did you like it? Yeah, it was really good. By the way, that was me who came to your door with the petition, and we were not going through your neighborhood. I don't remember how, but I got your home address somehow. And Mark says, remember, my uncle was an agent. I gave it to you, which I had no memory of. Okay. Total full circle moment. And Michelle thought it was the funniest thing she ever heard because she had this belief for 25 years that people were going through her neighborhood. <laughs> so those are my two best Star Trek stories. That's, That's fantastic. I love those. Thank you. Uh, you mentioned earlier you were on set uh, as an extra in Star Trek The Motion Picture. Yes, uh, yes. How did that come about, and how did it feel to be back with the crew of the Enterprise long after everyone thought it had ended for good? Well, it was pretty amazing to be there. I mean, it was one of those unbelievable moments where you just want to pinch yourself that it's happening, and you're there. So uh, at this point, uh, it was October of 78. You know, the film didn't come out till December of 79, but they'd been filming, and... 
Susan had worked for Gene for about four years at this point. And she called me up and they said, listen, um, Gene's inviting you and me to be extras in the, in the motion picture. She said, they're going to be auditioning people. We don't have to audition. But if you know anybody who wants to do this, they can come and audition. So I invited three of my friends and uh, two of them got in, one didn't. Uh, we, we were sort of off to the side. Everybody else lined up in two lines. And Robert Weiss himself went down the lines and picked the extras he wanted. And then they filled in. So he probably came up with about 100 extras that night. And then they brought another 200 in um, from the Screen Extras Guild. They had to get dispensation from the Screen Extras Guild for us to be there. But the Screen Extras Guild okayed it. So there we were for it was it was one day. Uh, a few people came back the second day, but most of us were just there for one day. Uh, there's a little story about that actually. So when we that night of auditions, uh, they gave us all uh, appointment times to come back and get fitted for shoes. Why only shoes? I don't know, and not the whole uniform, but shoes. <laughs> and I had this job at NBC and the time they gave me was going to be a conflict for me. So I traded times with someone. Now it's the day of filming and all my friends are way down front. So I go stand way down front with them and someone comes over to me and says, sorry, you can't stand here. You've got the wrong shoes. <laughs> because the front people, they're going to see their shoes. So I did it. I sabotaged myself. So I'm in the I'm in the back on the left, but if you freeze frame me in 4K, I can find myself. <laughs> yeah, it's um, it's a little bit surreal actually because I literally just saw the new version of the motion picture um, a few days ago at a cinema. So I did just <laughs> I, I remember um, you pointing out where you were on Twitter uh, at one point, and so I was looking during the rec tech scene to see if I could spot you against the wall. Um, but yeah, it was it was a breathtaking experience and. Uh, I yeah. just wanted to say, first of all, kudos for serving on the best-looking ship in the franchise because I love that <laughs> refitted Enterprise. It was pretty good, yeah. It was very, very exciting to be there. And and just how lucky was I to, to be a part of that, you know? Definitely, absolutely. And, uh, the yeah, the only question I had about that was that, obviously, uh, there's been a lot documented about that it was a somewhat tumultuous shoot, not because of... Um, behavior or anything but more that they were kind of writing the script as they went and stuff like that um did you get any sense of that or was the we did we, we couldn't tell that not not on that yeah. one day anyway um yeah. you know they the they put us all in position and then the cast came in and did all their lines there as far as we could tell we couldn't tell yeah. but Fair you know, enough. Really, it's just that little scene out of you know a two-hour movie. So, yeah, definitely, definitely. I just um, wish they had taken more time circling the Enterprise. Than, no, yeah, no, I actually didn't you, mind that, but I know I, we were we were saying the other day we could we could watch that go on for another twenty minutes, yeah, twenty thirty no, minutes. Me too. Me too. Yeah, <laughs> it looked great on the big screen. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, your next generation stories. Obviously, you, you've you've mentioned Susan Sackett. Uh, you wrote these stories with her. What was the process like of sharing scripting duties with another person? 
So up until that point, I had pretty much written everything I'd written, I'd written by myself. Uh, but we decided to team up, like I said, because we had both failed at, you know, on our own. So we thought, let's try it together. Uh, she literally lived five minutes from my house. So I'd go over to her house. She'd bake something and or we'd have dinner or lunch. And uh, I sometimes took a nap in the middle of <laughs> writing. And uh, we just would talk we talk about ideas and see what came up. And somehow out of that, we came up with what, you know, became past lives. And we just kept doing that. Like when it was time to go back in and meet with Michael and the whole writing staff, we just had jam sessions and came up with 12 ideas. So it was, it was back and forth, you know, definitely collaborative. Um, I enjoyed the process, you know, I, nothing, even though I had written everything by myself up to that point, didn't mind writing with a partner. Uh, when it came to the actual script, which is, you know, way after the story, the oral pitch and the story. And then finally, if you're going to write the script, you write the script. Uh, we divided it up. So I wrote some scenes, she wrote some scenes, and then we would get together and say, you know, well, this worked or this doesn't work. And, yeah, but it was it was a good pro. You know, we're still friends after all these years. I go visit her a couple times a year. Oh, lovely, awesome. Oh, awesome. At, least, yeah. at, at least at least you didn't butt heads to the point where you fell out. Exactly, which happens <laughs> sometimes. But no, no, mm. it's been a solid friendship for I won't say how many decades, but I guess I kind of gave that away already. <laughs> yeah, fair enough. Yeah, that's good. They're good friends. Uh, awesome. Well, first of all, before I ask my next question, do let us know if we're keeping you too long. I know it's very, very late there. so It's fine. No, no, no. You can go as long as you want. Awesome. Yeah, maybe not more than 24 hours, but, you know. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, my next question was just going to be about, um, I was going to ask if you were a fan of the newest Star Trek shows, but you've already said that you were. Um, so it was just going to be, do you have any favorite particular series, which I suppose Strange New Worlds would probably be that one. And It, um, is, do you... it is Strange New Worlds. It's <laughs> just brilliant. And the, the season finale? Yeah. Oh, yeah. oh Lord, that was incredible. Yeah, I, I feel like every, you both seen it, right? Oh, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Oh, okay, so I figured, but I wanted to make sure. Of yeah. course, you probably did the same thing. I had to go watch Balance of Terror again afterwards. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Oh yeah, I recognized all of the lines off by heart anyway. But yeah, yeah. anytime there was the same dialogue, I was like, oh, yes, I know. <laughs> but yeah, even awesome. even the look, like when they go to, excuse me, when they discover you know, what the Romulans look like. Mm -hmm. That just matched the shots and then the close-up, <laughs> the zooming in on the ear. It was brilliant. It was wonderful. It was. It was so good. Um, and other than potentially uh, Robert April, which there may be a conflict of interest, do you have any other favorite characters from any of the newer shows? <laughs> well, how can... Well, I think Anson Mound as Pike is doing mm -hmm. an amazing job. No, there isn't a captain I don't like, but he is way up there, you know, in the ranking of, if you had to rank all the captains. Yeah. Um, I know I love what they've done with Uhura and and Nurse Chapel, and I love their first meeting, you know, when they yeah. <laughs> introduce themselves to each other. Um, obviously, I love, you know, Kirk and Spock meeting for the first time, and 
they they're having they're just doing so many great things. I, I'm sure they're having an incredible amount of fun harking yeah, sure. back. And I'm sure we're gonna get much more of that, you know, in season two, which is already filmed. So let's get it on yeah. the air. Yeah. <laughs> Um, I, I didn't have this written down, but I'm just curious about your thoughts. Are you excited for the Lower Decks crossover episode in live action? I've, I've heard they've just filmed it, so it's it's in the can. <laughs> I, I read a little bit about it, uh, where we're going to see, you know, uh, them in live action. Yeah. Uh, Jack Quaid, right? And Tony. And uh, Tony Newsom, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So um, I think that sounds brilliant. So yeah, I'm, I'm looking forward to it. I don't know, quite know what to expect. That somehow <laughs> will be animated. Do you remember the movie Enchanted with Amy Adams? It's a Disney movie. Yeah. Off an animation, and when she falls into our world, she's human. Yeah. Yes. So it made me think of that. If we're going to see them as yeah, animated. that's a point. And that, then that would be kind of cool. Yeah. 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 Uh, somehow they. Well, obviously, there's going to be some time travel involved. And, yeah, that'd have to be. Uh, yeah. So it sounds like it's going to be. Great and gives lower decks more attention, which honestly has surprised me. As has Prodigy, how much I mentioned it, but yeah, a real surprise how fantastic they both turned out to be. I yeah. completely agree. Yeah, awesome. definitely. Um, I mean, following on from that, do you have an overall favorite character, both as a fan or as someone that you've written for? I would, I would have to say Spock. I, do, you know, starting back with the original series. Uh, I identify with him because growing up, not so much now, but growing up, I felt like an outsider in many ways, you know? Yeah. And so I had totally identified. I mean, I wasn't uh, unemotional, but uh, Mm. I could definitely identify with Spock. Yeah, I have a similar experience, and I've always said that I identified with Spock, and then um, it's a bit personal, so forgive me, but I was diagnosed with autism just about a year and a half ago. um, And... Once that happened, there was a kind of a light bulb moment of like, oh, that's why I had trouble understanding emotions and stuff. And that's why I related to a man who was always sort of like, I'm puzzled by this human emotion of yours, you know? Um, sure. So, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I think a lot of us can identify with him. Yeah. Uh, so you, uh, yeah, you, uh, we've kind of talked enough about Star Trek, I think now, but it's only a small part of a, a massive gargantuan and impressive career, um, obviously. And Thank you for sending me the letter pages from the Marvel and DC comics that you sent. <laughs> um, the, the Spider-Man one in particular was like a kind of holy grail to me because Superman and Spider-Man are my two number one all-time guys. So <laughs> that was special. Um, do you still follow Marvel and DC? And do you have any particular favorite comics from over the years? Well, uh, I do. I do I do have some favorites, uh, which I'll tell you, but I don't follow them as a, as like I used to. For a long time, I was I would go to the DC app every week and look at all the new issues coming out. So I knew yeah. what the plots were and what the stories were, even though I wasn't reading them. And um, Green Lantern has always been a, a particular favorite. So I'm really glad the HBO Max series is still a go so far. Yeah, so far. Uh, <laughs> yeah. You know, I waited 50 years for a Green Lantern movie, and just my luck, it wasn't any good. But I don't think it was as terrible as people say, but it wasn't yeah, great I don't think so. either. Yeah. Uh, but I was really looking forward to that movie, and hopefully we will see the Flash movie, but who knows. Um, 
anyway, yeah, so Green Lantern's a favorite Justice League. You know, I was I was definitely there in the Silver Age. Uh, yeah. So when they were bringing back Flash and Green Lantern and, you know, Flash of Two Worlds and Crisis on Infinite yeah. Earths. And so when I was 14, so I was writing these letters to the editor when I was 12 and 13. When I was 14, my parents, who were from the East Coast, were making their first trip back to the East Coast since moving to L.A. So I got to go to New York and Boston with them. So I wrote to all the editors at DC, and I wrote to Stan Lee and said, I'm going to be in New York, and I would love to meet with you. And they both said yes. And so I spent a day at DC just being shuttled from editor to editor, having, you know, some short meetings. And then I went over to Marvel, and I didn't know at the time that Stan didn't come out to meet the fans. There, his assistant, Flo, did. And she became kind of legendary. But back then, I had no idea. And she sent me off to meet Steve Ditko in his studio. I was I thought writing for DC was going to be my career. And then I got into music and comics kind of fell by the wayside. Right. Not playing music, but following music and the charts and all of that. So yeah, but no, I'd still I feel very partial, you know, to DC. And I like Marvel too. Yeah. <laughs> How does it feel to see the heroes that you grew up with following in some books to now take their place center stage on the big screen? Have you got any favorite movies that have particularly given you that same feeling you had when reading the books? And are there any heroes or teams that you'd love to see on the big screen that haven't appeared as yet? For some odd reason, I think Challengers of the Unknown would make a great TV series or film. But yeah, you know, actually, and I was I was actually thinking before they announced it that Strange Adventures would make a great anthology series. Yeah, well, it's come and gone, but uh, mm. that was that was a thought in my head too. Um, yeah. you know, Greg Berlanti has the lock on it, and I love a lot of the stuff that he's done. I really mm. do. So um, I'm, and, and movie wise, I thought the first Wonder Woman movie was really good. Yeah, did not care for Justice League until I saw the Snyder Cut, and then I appreciated it a lot more. Did not care for Man of Steel. Did not care for Batman versus Superman. Liked Aquaman. Yeah. Um, I wanted to like Green Lantern more than I did. Uh, like Shazam. Looking forward to Black Adam. Um, who else would I like on the screen? Hawkman. Hawkman would be interesting to me. I know he's been like a side character in Smallville and, you know. Um, Legends of Tomorrow as well, yeah. Yes, uh, yes. Yeah. But I, I'd like to see something with, with Hawkman. Let's hope he's done justice in Black Adam because I think Aldous Hodge is a great yeah. actor, so fingers crossed. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it would be. Hopefully, you know, I don't know, right now it seems like a really rough time for DC. Mm -hmm. and movies yeah. even comic books there's all these rumors going around about the new owners of you know warner brothers yeah what they're gonna do to dc yeah. comics so hopefully they're not you know they're wrong i've always been partial to dr fate i don't know yes. you know i mean we got dr strange movies <laughs> but maybe a dr fate movie would be good um awesome 
Yeah, those um, are the main ones I'd like to see. That's great. Um, yeah, so you've already mentioned that you went to the um, the DC and the Marvel offices, and you've mentioned again that you met Steve Ditko. Again, that's like sacred ground to me, so I just have to ask, what was he like and what was the experience like? I wish I could remember more of it. I mean, he was uh, generous of his time. I was there for about an hour. He showed me how he works. He showed me his studio. I, I can't say that I really got to know him, but even to have that one hour was fantastic and to be willing to have a fan come over and spend time i thought i'm sure he's busy but that yeah, was incredibly generous of him that that's my memory brilliant awesome uh yeah dk right what's the next question yeah uh mike was gracious enough to show me a couple of the uh the letters that you that you sent to him right and i was interested to see your the particular one to Metal Men because I've always been a fan of the, that group. So it led me to wonder: Are there any lesser known, well, in today's standards, lesser known Marvel or DC heroes that stand out to you as being inspirational? Well, I was a big fan of Adam Strange, and which is why I ripped him off for my story. <laughs> if I had published them, they probably would have sued me for uh, being too close to Adam Strange. But, which is actually another project I think could make you know an excellent TV series if if not yeah a film. they were they were touching on it a little bit in Krypton I don't know if you ever saw that and I was I did to see where that might go yeah I did yeah uh, a different take on Adam Strange but mm. still um, of course we did get to see Rip Hunter in uh, Legends of Tomorrow until they got rid of him always like Black Canary, and we've seen her in several different, you know, yeah, versions now, and still rumors of maybe a series or something. Um, you know, growing up, I was reading Green Arrow and Aquaman, and uh, we certainly had a good run of Arrow, and, uh, and I hope Aquaman 2 is, you know, as good as or better than Aquaman 1, which I, I liked a lot. Yeah, um, I'm trying to think of any other. Uh, well, growing up, um, the original Superboy, because I was a boy, and so yeah. I could really identify. I think I used to have dreams that I was Superboy and I was flying and having wow. adventures. So um, obviously, Superboy today is different than yeah that, that original run, and of mm. course we've got you know Superman's sons and Superman and Lois, so. Um, but I'm, yeah, I'm having a good thought. Uh, I never knew if it was Submariner or Submariner, but either way, um, that was a character I liked a lot growing up. Yeah. Uh, I, I, you know, I was there when I was buying comic books when they introduced Spider-Man and Amazing Fantasy and Thor and Journey. Amazing to me. <laughs> so I was buying all of those, and I was, I was into Fantastic Four. I, well, you saw the, you know, you know, I was had a letter in number nine, although I didn't send that one to you. Uh, someday I'll find it. And, and <laughs> Do, you have any, fair enough. Do you have any favorite runs on any particular comics that have meant something to you over the years that could you could maybe say, you know, people should check out this particular? Well, although I'd already stopped my my insane collecting, you know, my obsessive collecting, the Green Lantern, Green Arrow run was really, I thought, a milestone. Oh, I love Watchmen. 
Yeah. And, and yeah. I really love the series, although it was, of course, yeah. a different take. I thought the series was brilliant. Um, I thought episode eight of nine was one of the best hours of television I've ever seen where her, her you know, where she first meets Dr. Manhattan. And yeah. Yeah. Yeah, but, definitely. Yeah. But Watchmen to me is a, a real classic. I used to love uh, both Jimmy Olsen and Lois Lane when they had their mm. own books. Uh, yeah. Really, really enjoyed that. Um, wow, that's amazing. I'm sure there's more than thinking of at the moment. You and yeah. I share remarkably similar taste because <laughs> I've always said that, um, like I said, Superman and the supporting cast are favorites of mine. And I've long said that Watchmen is my second favorite book of all time oh. After, oh. Um, after The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. If you're oh. curious what the first was. Well, I love that too. I just today found the soundtrack CD. Oh, awesome. Oh, I'm going that. through my boxes. So I filed that away today under H. Awesome. <laughs> uh, that, uh, that feeds quite nicely into my next question, which was that um, I was surprised how much of what I would think of as particularly British culture you're aware of and kind of lived in. Um, oh. And I wondered if, uh, if you have any sort of, uh, have you ever visited our fair island? Do you have any pleasant memories about uh, Britain or its people? Present company ex excluded, of course. Oh, well, no, <laughs> you guys. Uh, very much so. So my first trip to London was when I was 25 years old and I was taking a vacation from NBC and I went to London, Paris, and Amsterdam. Didn't know a soul in any of those places. Went by myself, met people. In fact, one of the I met someone in 1974 who's still a friend today. And when I, I quit my job at NBC in 1982, um, for a lot of reasons, but one was I wanted to live in London. And I had a, I had a roommate who was getting married and I said to her, look, normally you'd move out because it was my house and she was renting a room. I said, but what if you and your husband continue to live here and I take off and go to London for a while? And so she said, well, yeah, that would be great. I had a dog. She had a dog. I didn't want to leave, you know, my dog needed to be taken care of. And also, I didn't want to move all my stuff out of the house. So yeah. that's what happened. I moved to London uh, in October of 1982, and I came home in January of 84. And my friend had a, are you London based or where are you? Uh, I'm in the Northeast. So I'm in, a, it's kind of close to Newcastle upon Tyne, if you know that. So. Yeah, I know. I'm, a, I'm originally from the North, but I'm actually living at the moment in Barcelona in, oh. in Spain. Yeah. So. Oh, been there very briefly twice and loved it. Have you tried tapas? No, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. <laughs> <laughs> um, so I loved living there. I, I really love Britain. And also, when I was living there, it was my in 83, that was my first opportunity to watch the Eurovision Song Contest. So that yeah. was great. I had known about it for years, but I'd never seen it until I lived in London. Uh, so I had, what, 15 months there. I ended up, I didn't have a plan when I went, except I was, I rented a room in my friend's house in Barron's Court. Uh, so I was right on the Piccadilly and District line, so I could get around really easily. And I ended up doing publicity for American television shows that were filming in England. And that kept me going for, you know, 
almost the full time I was there. And then it just felt like it was time to go home. I missed my dog. You know, my parents were still alive. I had this house. So I went home. And that's when I started writing full time, right after I got back from London. And then in 1995, uh, my I was working for Billboard, among other things. And Billboard sent me to London for half a year. They were launching a British, a UK magazine, and they wanted me to help with the launch. So I had six more months, and my friends still had a, a room for rent. So I lived back in Barron's Court again. So I have a lot of friends from my from living there. I have a lot of friends in London, and uh, I I passed through in May at the end of May. I was in Stockholm for a week, and I stopped in London on the way home so I could see the Abba show. Ah, of course, yeah, yeah, yeah. Which was what do you think to it? I love it. Did you have you? Are I you going to go? I'm, or? I'm a fan. I am wanting to go. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I, you, I just read today they're going to. Well, I interviewed Benny, and he told me that in four years they have to tear down the, the arena, because yeah. it's going to be public housing, and I read today that they've confirmed the show's going to run through 2026. Wow. Oh, oh wow. So I guess it's he's doing, doing well, very well, well then. Yeah. yeah. But That's but do go do go back for a visit, and I hope you both get to see it. Uh, so I was in London very, very briefly, but it was great, great to be back. Oh, fantastic. So I love the UK. And, you know, AbFab and Faulty Towers and Father <laughs> Ted and yep. uh, uh, Doctor Who, I'm all in. Oh, thank you. Oh. <laughs> yes, we're big Doctor Who fans. I, I never saw Doctor Who until they brought it back in oh, um, wow, okay. the 2000s. I had just never seen it before, but became a massive fan once once it was back. Brilliant. Oh, that's fantastic. Favorite I'm episode of Doctor Who? Oh, um, I'm all time probably. Uh, yeah, I was going to say Ark in Space or City of Death, the Tom Baker era, if yeah. you've gone back that far. <laughs> well, how about just from the, the new era? The new ones. Because uh, I have Blink. one. Blink uh, or yes, Silent that's my favorite. Movie. Blink. Oh, Fair enough. <laughs> yeah. I've watched it gonna... 15 times. Oh, oh, nice. Awesome. I was going to say um, Human Nature and Family of Blood is usually my go-to, um, just because I'm a sucker for those emotional sci-fi stories, as as we touched on with the, the Orville and things like that. So right. the kind of tragedy of the, the Doctor being made human and then having to give that up to return to his life and give up the, the woman he loved and everything. So, yeah. Oh, yeah. Big fan of melodrama. <laughs> <laughs> oh, me too. Lot, there have been a lot of great episodes, but but Blake really stands out for me. I was going to ask, I mean, you briefly touched upon it about your time in the UK, but I was going to ask what originally brought uh, the Eurovision to your attention and how important a role do you feel it plays in musical culture? And have you had any, sorry, it's a long question, have okay. you had any person, personal highlights in following over the years? Well, yes, I'll try to pick out just a few. But but so I went to work in a record store in Culver City, where I grew up, uh, just a mom and pop shop, you know, not a big chain. Uh, I, when I was 15 and they got Billboard delivered, you know, subscribed to Billboard. So I would see every year just a little tiny story about so-and-so wins the Eurovision Song Contest. That's where I first heard about it. And... 
In fact, that when I was 16, my aunt went to Europe for the first time and she said, is there anything I can get you? And I said, yes, I want a single of Poupée de Cire, Poupée de Son, because it won the Eurovision Song Contest and she brought it back. Okay. <clears throat> now, I, I never saw it until 83. Uh, but I was, you know, I definitely, well, of course, the first time I went to London, I, I mentioned was 1974. It was mid-April. And when I got there, the number one song was Waterloo. Because <laughs> it was just nice. two weeks later. Why didn't I go two weeks earlier and try to go to Eurovision? <laughs> I don't, but I didn't know enough about it to do that. So, uh, so I knew that ABBA won, and I loved ABBA right from Waterloo. And then... After I saw the 83 contest, I didn't see it again until 93 when I figured out I should have somebody video it for me. My friend worked at a music music publisher in LA and they had a PAL machine. So I thought I could go over to his office and watch Eurovision if I get a tape. So that's how I saw the 93 contest and 94. And while I was watching the 94 contest, I thought, wait a minute. I'm a journalist. I could go to this. I could cover it for Billboard. <laughs> so in 94, I decided that in 95, I was going to go to Eurovision. What I didn't know is that in February of 95, Billboard sent me to London. So first I covered the Great British Song Contest with Jonathan King picking the songs, and there were five, five songs that were in contention. And I interviewed all five artists and did story for our British magazine. And then I said to my editor, you know, I want to actually go to Dublin and cover your fish. She said, good, go. You got the assignment. So I went to Dublin to the Point Theater and it was 1995 and saw my first Eurovision. And Norway won. So in 96, I went to Oslo and Ireland won again. I just kept going. I went to 12 <laughs> of them. And I have so many great stories and memories. So let me just pick a couple of the, to tell sure. you. So in 97, back in Dublin, and you know, there's too many delegations to all be in one hotel. But I was in a hotel where there were three or four delegations, including Malta. And so one night after rehearsals, I'm in the the lobby, which was the lobby bar. And I'm sitting talking with the delegation from Malta. And after a couple hours of chat, they say to me, we'd like to invite you to be a judge for our national final next year because we have seven judges, two are from Malta, and five are international. So would you be interested in doing that? I said, would I? <laughs> yeah. And they followed through. And I went to Malta in 98. And I was one of seven judges, and there was no televoting at that point. It was just the seven of us deciding of the, I think there were 32 entries, who was going to go to Eurovision. So we watched all the performances. We went upstairs to a private room and deliberated. And we all pretty much agreed on one act, one particular artist and song. And she went to Eurovision in 98. Now, I went to 98. Um, and sat with the Maltese delegation in the in the venue in the in the arena in Birmingham, 
because Katrina and the waves had won the year before, oh, which yeah. I was there for. In fact, when I went to judge, Katrina and the waves were the special guest. We were old, we were old friends by now from Eurovision, so we got to be in Malta anyway. Uh, so now it's 1998, and the singer was Kiara. The song was the one that I love, and the voting is taking place. I'm sitting with the Maltese delegation in the hall, and across the aisle from us was Israel, and sitting next to us was Finland. You sit, they were seated in the same order they were performing. It just that's just how it turned out. Yeah. So with one country left to vote, the score was Israel had 166 points, and Malta had 166 points. It was a tie, yes. and there's only one country left to report their vote. And the country was the former Yugoslav Republic of Macedonia. <laughs> so what we all knew was, or thought, because every country but one had voted, given points to Israel, and every country but one other had given points to Malta. So it was pretty certain that whichever country you heard first, the other country was going to get more points, and they were going to win. So you could hear a pin drop in the auditorium. The tension was just, so they give their, back then they gave their one, their two, their three, four, five, six, seven, eight points, Israel. And all the Israelis sank into their seats. They were, they were standing waving their flags. They're defeated. They're in their seat. They're crushed. And people started shouting at us, you've won. You've won. The Finnish people are all yelling in their delegation. They're all yelling, you've won. And I'm going, oh, my God, I helped pick the song, and they're going to win <laughs> for the first time ever. I can't believe it. Ten points, United Kingdom. You've won. You've won. Oh. Twelve points, Croatia. <laughs> Zero from Malta. Oh, Israel won. Of course, it was Donna International with Diva. Of course, oh, yeah. 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 You know, yeah, and and the ten points pushed the UK into second place. Amani, mm. where are you now, Amani? And so Malta ended up third, which was still at that time tied their best score ever. But yeah. for a few minutes there, I thought I'm going to Malta next year because I helped pick their song. <laughs> and they're going to win. That's going to be nice. It was surreal. <laughs> totally awesome. Awesome. Uh, awesome. Do you have time for my other Eurovisions? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, go ahead. Yeah, yeah definitely. <laughs> um, I have a lot of them. But so in 2000, we're in Stockholm. And, uh, oh, there's two stories I should tell you. But anyway, we're in Stockholm. And uh, at the Friday, you know, there's a Friday afternoon dress rehearsal, Friday night dress, Saturday afternoon, and then live show. Friday afternoon is the first rehearsal with the whole run of show. And Denmark just gets huge applause. Now, normally, Sweden would get the biggest applause because we're in Sweden. But yeah. this went through the roof for Denmark. And I thought, they're going to win. And the same thing happened that night and the next afternoon. So at the winner's press conference, I, my question to the brothers Olsen was, at what moment during this week, did you first think 
you were going to win. And I thought they were going to say Friday afternoon when the crowd went wild. But that wasn't what they said. They said, well, at our party Wednesday night, when Billboard said they liked our song, me, we thought we're going to win. <laughs> I thought, oh, <laughs> I, wasn't, I wasn't expecting that. Oh, so I wow. stayed in touch with them for quite a while. After. Oh, so 1995, I was a big fan of Stock, Aiken, and Waterman. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. In 95, a friend of mine was their publicist for Stock Aiken. Waterman was out of the picture at that point. And so I would go over and have lunch with him. And on May 10th, 1995, I went to have lunch with him. When we came back from lunch, then I, that's when I would chat with Mike and Matt. And they introduced me to an artist who was in the happened to be in the office that day, Nikki French. And at that moment, Total Eclipse of the Heart was just going up the American chart. It was number 16 that day. Yeah. And it was a Wednesday, which was chart day. But because of the time difference, I was going to get the chart at midnight. Mm. So I said, Nikki, if you want, I'll call you at home and tell you where you went from 16 to, you know, where. She said, yeah, that would be great, please. So she gave me your phone number. I go to the office, and at midnight, the chart comes through on the fax machine. I called her up, and I said, Nikki, you are top 10 in America. She went from 16 to 8. Awesome. She screamed, and she was so happy. (laughs) She ultimately peaked at number two in America. Oh, that's great. So flash forward five years to the day. It's May 10th, 2000, which is the first Monday of Eurovision week. And Nikki rehearses and has her press conference. Now we had stayed in touch, so we we were friends and in, in you know emailing and all that. And so I still have to ask my question, and I said, Nikki, you know, we met five years ago today. And here's my question: I don't remember what I asked her, but uh, so that was another sort of full circle moment. That's fantastic. And I had a lot of fun. I had a lot of. Oh, 1998, the song I really, I, I love Kiara's song, but my favorite song was Belgium, uh, right. Dewey by Melanie Cole. And at the opening night ceremony is when you can mingle with everybody. So I met her and I said, I just want you to know that your song is my favorite song this year. <laughs> A few minutes later, some of the delegation from Belgium came over to me and they didn't say this in a mean way or an accusing way, although it'll sound like it. They said, we just wanted to ask you, um, you, you told Melanie, uh, that was, you know, it's your favorite song. I said, I did. And they said, we were just curious, do you say that to everybody? <laughs> right. And I said, no, no, I really, her song is my favorite this year. It's actually my second favorite Eurovision song of all time, but wow. I didn't know about them. I needed more perspective. Okay. What's your, your, your favorite is uh, yeah. I thought you would ask that. <laughs> <laughs> it's the first year I went, 95, Cyprus. Uh, Alex Panay, Steve Fautier. And I met Alex at the after party. And we've actually been friends ever since, too. Like I just oh, interviewed man. him for a billboard story about um, Ukraine and Russia in Eurovision mm-hmm. and their history together. Because in 2000, Alex was back performing again as uh, with a woman as a duo. A duo. And uh, there was a hotel right next to the arena. 
And one afternoon I was sitting in the lobby and Alex and, and the delegation from Cyprus was there. And the Turkish delegation was also staying in the hotel and they were there. Well, you know, Turkey and Cyprus, kind of a conflict yeah. there because of yeah. the invasion of, yeah. Well, they all started playing music together and ended up embracing each other. And it was just a moment. And there were only maybe 10, 10 outsiders outside of those two delegations observing this. So in my story about Ukraine and Russia, I referenced that other political, you know, times in Eurovision, which is really not supposed to be non-political. I mean, but this is a good thing that this was, yeah, yeah. you know, two delegations coming together despite any differences that their their governments had. Well, yeah, um, this is a, a potentially really big question, but obviously you, as you've touched on, you're a big music fan. You you write a lot on music. You've made a ton of Spotify playlists that I've had a quick chance yes, to check out. Um, so as somebody with a deep love of music, sorry to put you on the spot, but do you have three favorite sort of albums of all time and three favorite gigs that you've ever been to? Okay, good question. I, I have not prepared an answer for it, but let's see. <laughs> my my all-time favorite album is Tapestry, Carol King. Right, okay. Uh, I interviewed her when I was in college for the same paper that I interviewed Gene Roddenberry for, but, you know, a little a few years later. And at the time, she was recording an album over at A&M in Hollywood, and that's where we did the interview, not in the studio, but in an office. And she, when the album came out, it was Tapestry. I interviewed her before Tapestry because I liked her songwriting. Mm. So that is my favorite album of all time. Number two is Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band. Standard. <laughs> and number three is a tie between The Visitors, Voulez-Vous, and uh, Super Trooper albums. Nice. But then okay. um, Dusty and Memphis would be in my top five as well. Brilliant. Oh, these are all good choices. <laughs> yeah. And, and then fifth would probably be a Kate Bush album. Maybe the kick inside mm. or oh hounds of love. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. Even before Stranger Things. I was yeah. a <laughs> Cape Bush fan starting with Wuthering Heights. So Yeah. And what um, about gigs that you've been to? Did you have any gigs? gigs? So well, one would be ABBA's live North American tour in 1979. I I, I saw that. Uh, another would be in 1964. There was a concert at the Santa Monica Civic Auditorium. It was videotaped and released in motion in theaters as a motion picture, even though they videoed it, which was very unusual at the time. Do you know what it is? Or, or no. okay. So here's who was on the bill: Chuck Berry, Marvin Gaye, Smokey and the Miracles, The Supremes, <clears throat> The Beach Boys. The Rolling Stones, James Brown, Billy J. Kramer and the Dakotas, Jerry and the Pacemakers, Leslie Gore, and it was hosted by Jan and Dean. So each act did about three songs, and I was in the audience. I got a ticket through my local radio station, went with two friends who were slightly older than me, and they could drive. <laughs> 
And uh, they started tape, videotaping at 6 p.m. And, <clears throat> sorry, they started videotaping at 6 p.m. And at 1 a.m., they came out and said, a lot of your parents are calling. So if you think your parents are worried and want you home, you should probably leave. <laughs> well, we hadn't seen the Rolling Stones or James Brown yet. Nobody left. <laughs> so that was just the gig of a lifetime. Now, unfortunately, the first night, they taped the whole show one night and the following night. The night I went, only one act didn't appear, and that was the Supremes, <laughs> who were my favorite act of all time. Now they're not true to ABBA. So I didn't see <laughs> them until like three years later. But anyway, that would be a favorite gig. You know, I've seen Carol King live. Oh, I went, you, you saw the Rocket Man movie, the Elton John bio? Yeah. Mm. Do you remember he uh, he made a real breakthrough in America by appearing at the Troubadour in Los Angeles? I yes. was there. I, I was, oh, wow. Yeah, I was That's a college cool. journalist, so I got invited. And wow. So those, those would be, you know, I saw Queen live. I saw ELO live. I would... Roxy Music, I saw live. Queen and live they're, coming, <laughs> they're coming back to LA. They're doing their farewell oh. tour. And I'm going because I become friends with Phil Manzanera, the guitarist. Oh, wow. Uh, the last like seven years, we've been in Sweden at the same time for the same event. And so we've been hanging out in Sweden every year. So he invited me nice. to come see Roxy Music. At the, oh, fantastic. Yeah. yeah. So. You know, I was born at the right time. I got to see a lot yeah. of that. The Beatles <laughs> at the Hollywood Bowl. How can I forget that? Oh, wow. Yeah. Whoa. Oh, wow. <laughs> okay. I mean, you, you are such an expert on with regards to music. I, sorry, I have to show you something. Oh, go for I it. Found, okay, go I, I've been finding things in storage. Oh wow. oh, wow. I found this today. <laughs> 19, that is amazing. 1964. I couldn't get a ticket for the Hollywood Bowl. I did go in 65, but I was able to get tickets for their two Las Vegas shows, one at 4 o'clock and one at 9 o'clock. Uh, and I had a cousin who lived in Vegas, so she got tickets, and we went to see the Beatles. I found the photo today. <laughs> Talk about a life well lived. That's brilliant. Yeah. Yeah. I feel very fortunate. Yeah, Definitely. for sure. Do you ever find yourself, when you meet someone, do you ever find yourself, however inadvertently, judging others on their musical taste? Uh, did they ever like say, oh, I like this group, and you think, ugh. Oh. In general, I, I am so seriously not a judgmental person. I'm really not. Uh, it's a lesson I learned back in my early 30s about being judgmental or not. And I went with not. Yeah. Up to that point, I probably, it was a, you know, but so no, no. It doesn't mean I agree with everybody's taste, but it's a big <laughs> wide world. I have very eclectic taste. I mm. mean, I, I, I wrote uh, for 10 years in a row, I wrote a show for the Academy of Country Music. So I got to know country music and, and the artist really well over a 10 year period. I like R&B, I like pop, I like Broadway. I'm not, I, I feel ignorant for saying so. I'm not, a, I'm not really into classical music, even though I probably would enjoy it. Right. Not that I never listen to it, but I don't know it that well. Yeah. I'm not into death metal. 
<clears throat> Other than that, I kind of like every, you know, a little bit of everything. Yeah, that's fair enough. Cool. Um, my next question is kind of music based as well. Um, our good friend Will Templar, who's been on both of our podcasts, um, is a huge fan of the Jacksons, and you literally wrote the book on them with the unique access. Um, I so I just had to ask. Um, he'll kill me if I don't ask. What would they like, and do you have any kind of uh, maybe unheard stories from meeting them? I don't know about. Let me think about the unheard stories. But uh, so what happened was, a friend of mine from London. Uh, named Adam White, who worked at Billboard for many years. Uh, in 2016, he wrote what I would say is the most authoritative book on Motown. And Adam is just a massive Motown fan, so he was the perfect person to write it. And it had a British publisher. The book came out all over the world. Well, the Jacksons saw that book, and they called the publisher and said, you know, our 50th anniversary is coming up, and we'd like to do a book. And the publisher said, yes. <laughs> and then Adam went to the publisher and said, you should ask Fred to write it. And they did. So that's how it came about. And then I spent three days with Marlon, three days with Tito, and three days with Jackie. Jermaine elected not to be a part of it, mm. although I wrote about him in the book, but he didn't want to be interviewed or anything like that. As the other three told me, you know, we love him, but that's Jermaine, so... Yeah, right. And of course, Michael had already passed at that time. Mm. They were very different from each other, but they were all incredibly humble, incredibly nice, uh, honest with me. You know, it was their book, so they wanted to tell their stories. Um, I enjoyed meeting all three, but I think the one I'm closest to is Jackie. Uh, mm. But they were all all great, and I was just really happy. You know, the book was going to depend on what they were willing to talk about in their interviews. And uh, they're very open and honest. And I, it was a great project to work on. I don't know that I have any untold stories because I told them all in the book. <laughs> oh, that's good. Well, um, he, as soon as I mentioned the book to him, when I mentioned I was interviewing you, he said that he wasn't aware that it existed and immediately went and ordered it. So I've made you oh. a sale. <laughs> There's another 20 cents in my pocket. Thank you. <laughs> we go. I, I'm, I'm, I'm actually glad that it's, you know, it did sell pretty well. Um, yeah, definitely. Uh, and, and I thought the art direction, which I had nothing to do with, was incredible. The photos came from the brothers. They, they were their personal mm. photos. So, you know, there are over a thousand photos in the book. And uh, so I wrote the text and the captions. <laughs> the captions took all right. as long as the book itself. But it was it, I loved working on them. I loved working with them. They were really great. That's good. Awesome. Nice one. Um, uh, looking back on everything you've worked on over your career, do you feel that you've accomplished everything that you set out to do? Or is this something you would still like to do that you haven't got around to as yet? And what are you most proud of? Well, I think I'm most proud of Star Trek. And I, you know, I wrote a lot of music shows, a lot of variety shows, and enjoyed them all and happy with how they all turned out. Some were better than others, you know. But, but Star Trek to me, you know, that's, I had a burning passion to write for Star Trek that started building within me when I watched the original series. So, yeah, through it, through whatever twist of fate it took, I got to do it. So, that was Brilliant. that that's it for me 
Yeah, there are things. I've written a couple of movie scripts. I don't know that they're ever going to get made, but um, that would be something I'd really like to accomplish. I have ideas for series I'd still like, you know, even at my age that I'd still like to make happen. Um, so there are, yeah, there are things I'd still like to do. That's great. We'd like to see any of these things yeah. as well. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah. Um, awesome. Uh, so, yeah. Uh, so are you working on anything at the moment or uh, upcoming that you can tell us about? I am, actually. Uh, just a week ago, was uh, got the green light to do my next book. Oh, wow. Okay. Um, I, I can't say too much about it, but I can tell you it's about the American music industry in Russia. Oh, okay. Oh. Wow. That's going to be timely and interesting, I would think. Yeah. It, it will be. It will be. And so, um, you're, again, Eurovision 2000, I'm in Stockholm, and the singer from Russia, Alsu, who sang solo and came in second, she was signed to Universal Music. The head of Universal Music was an American and so I met him in 2000, and we've stayed friends ever since. And he wanted, wants to write a book about the rise and fall of the American music industry in Russia. And so I hooked him up with my new publisher, who I was about to write a book for. And then he said, would you write my book? And I said, yeah, I'd love to. So that's my next book. That's brilliant. Awesome. I look forward yeah. to it. The last question is, will you be attending Eurovision next year in the UK? Well, not that I know of, but I wouldn't rule it out completely. Um, so nice. I do go to Sweden every year, except for two years of COVID, to cover something called the Polar Music Prize. It's like a Nobel Prize, but it's not an actual Nobel Prize. It was founded and funded by Stig Anderson, the manager of ABBA, yeah, And this year was the 30th annual Polar Music Prize. And it's uh, there are no nominees. They simply announce who the laureates are. And there's one from the pop world and one from the classical world every year. And it's gone to more people than I could tell you, but it's gone to Paul Simon and Joni Mitchell and B.B. King and Stevie yeah. Wonder and Led Zeppelin and Pink Floyd. These are the pop ones, obviously. Yeah. Uh, uh, and I've been going. This is my 20th time going to the prize. And I've covered it for Billboard. And I've, when they had press conferences, I moderated the press conferences there for them. Um, so why am I telling you this? Uh, oh, so it's moved around. It's been in May. It's been in June. It's been in uh, August. But right now it's in May. Yeah. So... It's possible I could go to Eurovision and go to yeah. Sweden. Yeah. Uh, have, do we have the dates yet? I don't think they announced the dates. I don't think they've announced the date as yet. Right. They've, they're down to seven cities, I know. Yeah. Um, so I don't know if it'll be possible or not. Also, I haven't been since 2007. I don't know what it would be like to go back. Um, I don't know. So I'm not going to say no for sure, but I really don't know. Okay. Well, I mean, I can't, I can't speak for Mike, but if I can get hold of tickets, I'm planning on being there. And ah. the reason I was asking that, I was going to say, if you're there, ah. the round is on me. Well, thank you. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> I'll get the next round. 
Yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah, no, no, I'll, I'll, let's stay in touch. I'll keep you posted. By the way, on my website, I have links to all the podcasts I've done. So when this goes up, let oh, me okay. know and I'll put a link. Oh. Um, and fantastic. It, it's fredbronson.com. Uh, if anybody wants to go look yeah. and there are photos from my Star Trek days, including yeah, Gene <laughs> and um, yeah, there's one from the set of Menage a Troy. And anyway, if anybody wants to take a look, it's uh, Fred definitely, Bronson. Uh, we'll put it in. Definitely the highly recommend that. Yeah, we will put it in the description as well. Yeah, absolutely. And um, yeah, uh, that's that's I think everything that we uh, we had written down to ask. And as I said, we've probably kept you right. way, way too no, long. No, it's fine. First of all, I'm usually <laughs> awake at this time. And it did not seem like two hours. It, seemed, it, went it very didn't, fast. no, but we could talk to you genuinely for Definitely, hours. Definitely, yeah. <laughs> well, Thank you, you ever, so much. You're welcome. Thank you both. And if you ever want me back, uh, I don't know if I have any stories left, but um, there probably <laughs> are. I, I'd be glad to do this again. It was a lot of fun. I'll, you asked a lot yeah. of great questions, so. I'll keep in touch and um, yeah, Please. definitely. We may be, uh, we may do a review of one of your Trek episodes and have you talk about it if you don't okay, mind. Yeah. Um, <laughs> okay, so, I can yeah. explain why I did that or why I didn't. <laughs> I don't exactly. Yeah. No, I'd thank love... you. Thank you so, so much for, uh, thank you so much for taking definitely. the time. Yeah. Um, it really, it really does mean more to us than I could probably coherently express, but uh, yeah, thank it's you, been thank a pleasure you. and a privilege. Uh, appreciate yeah, it. Thank you so much, sir. It's it been fun. lovely to meet you, sir. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, you take care and uh, hopefully keep in touch and we'll maybe speak again soon. <laughs> I would love to. You guys take care too. Thank you. You yeah. too. Thank you. Good night. Bye-bye. <laughs> Bye. So, yeah, hopefully you enjoyed that uh, bumper interview. I don't think we were expecting that, but um, we are so grateful to Fred for taking the time to chat with us and we're sure you enjoyed listening to it. We did. The time flew by, as he himself generously said. So, uh, yeah, it was an yeah, absolute pleasure. Uh, <laughs> it really was. Hopefully, we'll uh, we'll entertain you. And uh, it's nice to know that we'll live on his website, which, as I uh, kind of mentioned, I definitely recommend you going to check out fredbronson.com. It is fantastic. There's links to all of uh, the books that he's written, a lot of the music journalism, some great photos, including some personal ones from the track days. And, uh, Obviously, all the podcasts, including this one, so that'll be good. So, um, yeah, uh, we are going to head out now. Obviously, we've probably kept you, if you've watched this all in one go, well done. <laughs> and uh, we've probably kept you well enough. So, uh, DK, have you got anything you wanted to say to the, the viewers and listeners before we run? No, just thank you for joining us. I hope you enjoyed watching as much as we enjoyed talking to Fred. And once again, to Fred, thank you so much for giving us over well over two hours of your time it's been an absolute pleasure to talk to you and we hope to do it again sometime and as for the podcast uh, we hope you stick around uh we've got some good episodes coming up we've got some fresh faces and the guest front that we hope you'll enjoy and yeah it should be a blast so please come back and join us absolutely so uh yeah everybody have a great rest of your day if you're listening to this or uh or whatever and uh, in the meantime remember we are starfleet Live long and prosper. Where am I? There we go. Giving it a bit mariner here. <laughs> <laughs> there we are. You have been listening to the Hit or Miss Star Trek podcast, hosted by Michael Wilson and DK. Created, produced, and edited by Michael Wilson. Additional material produced by DK. Music by Timeless Journey. More information can be found at soundcloud.com forward slash timeless journey. 
The Hit or Miss Star Trek podcast is based on an idea by Michael Wilson and Will Templar. Follow the podcast on Twitter at HomeTrack, on Instagram at Home Star Trek Podcast, or look for the Hit or Miss Star Trek Podcast under Facebook groups. Links to all our social media accounts and more are in this episode's description. This podcast is available on YouTube or wherever you get your podcasts. Just look for Silver Screen Hit or Miss Star Trek. This has been a Mike's Podcast production, copyright 2022. Thank you for listening.